I'm your host, Madeline, and welcome to The Courageous Podcast, where you will hear inspirational stories every Monday and Thursday of everyday people who will share how they found strength, hope, and faith in the midst of adversity. Let's get ready to be inspired. So today I have Joe Thomas, who is a good friend of mine. He's a certified alcohol and drug counselor, husband to loving and beautiful wife, Felicia Thomas, father of four beautiful daughters, Asia Marie, Alanis Marisol, Ava Michelle, and Addison Mia. He's a proud member of New Life Covenant Church while actively serving in ministry in and outside the walls. He's serving over 300 people who are on a mission to create their lives. So, Joe, thank you so much for being on the Courageous Podcast today. I want to welcome you. Thank you. Thank you. Super excited for you to share your story. I remember when I first heard it, I was totally in awe. And to see, you know, where you came from and and who you are today is is pretty amazing. So take us back to that time when, you know, you were going through one of the most difficult times in your life. Okay. Well, hello, everyone. And thank you so much, my good friend, Madeline, for allowing me to be on this podcast. Uh, my name is Joe Thomas. I'm originally from Chicago. I basically, around 1995, off and on experimenting with marijuana, cocaine, acid, I eventually got hooked on heroin. Um, I moved out to Los Angeles, California, where I started using intravenously. Um, it got so bad, became homeless, uh, eating out of the trash, sleeping in porta potties, uh, in and out of uh, jail. That eventually led me to incarceration. Now, this time span ran from 15 all the way to, I want to say around 28 years old. We're talking about in and out of Cook County Jail that led me to Los Angeles, got to Los Angeles, and then I uh, ended up becoming homeless, uh, weighing 120 pounds. Um, it was uh, extremely difficult and horrible. Can I ask you what led you to the drug abuse going through something like this, you know, from the age of 15 to 28? I mean, that's those are some really, really critical times. Um, and some of the best years of your life, you know, what led you to the drug abuse? Um, I, I guess I could all, you know, I could easily say it was because of a lack of having a father around, but it was just the lack of, you know, I was looking for yearning for something that might've been part of it, not having my dad around. My mother did an amazing job, still doing an amazing job being a single mom, raising four, four kids. I was just yearning for something, and the yearning I was searching for turned out to be some bad individuals that I got it connected with. And you know, once I tried that that first hit or line, you know, the euphoria that came from that, I escaped the pain of not having a father, you know, not really fitting in, being in a biracial family, being mixed. You know, having some trauma in my past, you know, I also reveal, I'll reveal that uh, from the ages of six to 12, I was molested from a cousin. There was, you know, just things, things I was trying to keep secret, trying to fit in. And uh, it led me to using heroin. And why did you leave to go to L.A.? What was in L.A.? What, what led you to get there? 
So between 1992 and 1995, I was in and out of the county, Cook County Jail. That led me to my mom saying, I really can't handle you being here. So we're going to go live with your father. This was, I haven't seen my father in about over a decade. Went to all the way. She drove me all the way to Kankakee, Illinois, where he was residing. Got there. We talked, tried to recreate, you know, the time lost. His wife came home. They talked in the living room. She came out. She said, I'm sorry, I apologize, but you can't live here. It was a whole big mess. I left. So my mom was like, the only thing I can do, she shipped me off to California for detox under her insurance. So that's what led me to the life of, you know, being in California. I went to detox. That was a rough patch because I was back and forth from Orange County, California to Chicago. And then I finally stayed uh, after three times going back and forth from California to Illinois. I stayed in California and then I started making a life out there. And when you said that, you know, the drug abuse led you to being homeless. Tell us a little bit more about your life, uh, being homeless, you know, being on the street, not knowing maybe when you were going to have your next meal. Or uh, it, was, it was extremely horrible. We're talking about staying in, you know, motels, uh, walking the streets for hours. Like I stated previously, eating out the trash, sleeping in porta potties. Now, I know people can't imagine that, but it's not. It's, you know, no fun and games sleeping in a porta potty. And you can imagine a porta potty, how small that is. But mm-hmm. in LA, the homeless population in LA, that is the norm. You know, skid row, being on skid row. If anybody listens to this podcast, they want to YouTube or look up skid row. You know, I was sleeping in tents, sleeping on the streets, sleeping on newspapers. Like it was extremely, that was extremely a dark time in my life. Being homeless, I don't wish that on anyone. But, you know, on top of being homeless, you know, with the strong drug addiction, catching viruses, infections in my arm from shooting up, it was it was extremely painful at that time. And what did you do for money to be able to buy the drugs? Uh, anything from stealing. And by the way, I was a bad thief because I always went to jail for that. We're talking about stealing, uh, selling drugs. Anything went Anything went at that time. Anything would go at that time. The only thing I didn't find myself doing was prostitution. Mm-hmm. I, I, you know, I, that was one thing I never did. I wasn't good at panhandling. So it was just mainly stealing, selling drugs, stealing drugs, uh, stealing clothes, you know, LA is a different breed, a different monster. You know, I don't know if people can understand how I put that. It's just different. Mm-hmm. So to get money, I guess, was a lot easier there than being mm-hmm. in Chicago. So I guess with the weather. Was there anyone there in LA that you connected with because you had no family, no friends? Was there anyone there that helped you to kind of make it through day by day, or were you completely alone? Well, in 2000, I was introduced to Alcoholics Anonymous, and that was from when my mom previously sent me to detox. I was living in Fountain Valley, California. Good friend of mine, I'm still good friends with him, Alonzo. He runs a place called New Beginnings Fellowship out in Orange County. I start building a relationship with them, even though I didn't listen to any of their you know, advice, of course. I was young, not really knowing the severity of my addiction. So I built a relationship with them. I still have a relationship with that group. 
that I talked to today, but I just wasn't listening. So I had them out there. You know, there were periods of time where, where I, you know, I was doing well, I was working, but I still had that monkey on my back. I didn't want to submit to really say that I had a serious drug problem. I just thought I had a bad run. So I had, you know, great support out there. You know, I actually caught, you know, another woman I had in, in my life. Uh, she was like my second mom. Her name was Arisha Muhammad. She was part of that, that fellowship I had out there. You know, they took me in. They looked out for me. But of course, I still didn't submit to the truth that I had issues. So I went on my own and went deep down. You know, eventually had a daughter out there. You know, my daughter, Asia. Mm-hmm. who's 19 right now at Arizona State University. You know, I had her, me and her mom, you know, are in great spirits right now. Uh, but that was a tough time. Having a daughter on top of having an addiction, I can remember bringing her many times to go purchase drugs. It was horrible. You know, I don't wish that on any parent. Actually leaving her in the car, walking a half a block away while she's in the car seat. Yeah, Madeline, I don't even think I told you these stories before. Mm-hmm. But yeah, leaving her in the car, just the stuff that I've done and remembering addiction can take you to places that you you really don't want to be in. And so when you were out there going through that, obviously, um, having your daughter could have been a pivotal moment where you say, hey, I got to stop this nonsense because I've got a child now or you know, you're going to keep doing what you're doing because the addiction itself, as much as you want to stop, doesn't allow you to because you have to, you know, you keep yearning for that because you're still broken. Right. Um, at what point in Asia's life did things start turning around for you? Well, you would think that, you know, having a child would have been the, the point of me saying, okay, this is enough. But that's why people have to understand with any type of addiction or anything, enough has to be enough with the person. Like it can't be about children and things like that. But I would say around, she was seven, still living in, actually they had moved to Colorado. I was in Chicago at the age seven. I was uh, living at the Fullerton Motel on Pulaski and Fullerton. And my mom had just gave me $40. And I want to just paint a picture of that last episode with my mom. My sisters uh, pushed her to getting a restraining order. Uh, from her house where I couldn't be a hundred feet uh, from the house. She lives in Oak Park. Wow. And yeah, it was, yeah, it's just, you know, the despair. So I went to the, I, you know, I was, I was fiending. I was in one of my rages. Uh, my mom used to enable me a lot, but you know, she had enough. She got the courage to put the restraining order out on me. So she gave me the $40, but she was giving me the $40. She slid it under the glass door where I couldn't come in. And she was, you know, almost like a, if I was an animal, like a dog. It was, it was, just, it was just horrible. It was mm-hmm. uh, humiliating. It was, you know, devastating that it, it, has, it came to this point where I, you know, couldn't be around my mom. She slid me the $40. I took the $40 went back to the motel, did my whatever. And at that point, I was like, is this going to be me for the rest of my life? Is this going to be me? You know, I know I'm better than this. I know I'm better than this. You know, yeah, that's the things that were going on in my head. So I did what I knew how to do. I went to an emergency room, told them that I was suicidal because sometimes, 
you know, as addicts um, do, you know, we, we play the system. So I knew they would send me to a place. So they sent me, even though I was not going to do anything, even if you say those words, they have to follow the protocol when someone admits that they're suicidal. So they sent me to Chicago Reed on Oak Park and Irving. Mm -hmm. And that place keeps you. You can't get out until you see a psychiatrist after 10 days. So I knew going in there, I wasn't just going to be able to leave. And I started knowing myself. After being in and out of treatment programs, detoxes all over the city, I knew myself. I needed to go somewhere where they were going to keep me. So then and there, I started being honest. I went through my 25 days of withdrawing from the drugs, the not sleeping, the cat naps, the throwing up. I had to go through that metamorphosis. So someone told me about a place called Jack Clark's Family uh, on Kedzie and Fulton. And this whole time in my life, I was trying to run from the West side because that's where I got high at. But -hmm. it's funny how God works because that's where he sent me to start my life over. Wow. (laughs) Right. And so what was different about this time, you know, being at Reed versus all the other times? You know, what what motivated you to say, hey, I'm going to push through this time? What do you think it was at that time that finally kind of stuck with you? I, I knew I had more to give. I knew my life was more than what it was. I just knew. I used to sleep on the, I used to sleep on the train going back and forth when I didn't have a place to go. And I remember Mm -hmm. seeing people go to work every morning and I would be in that little two seater. I don't know. You've been on the L, right? Mm -hmm. You know, the little two seater near the conductor door. I used to sleep there and like five, six in the morning when I'd wake up, I'd see it packed with people going to work. And I was like, why can't that? That's me. That that should be me. So just things like that, thinking like that, I just knew my life had more to offer than being this just monster. Wow. So I was dying. I was done. Yeah. I was tired. I was tired. I was, you know, they have this saying, this little cliche, but it's so profound. I was sick and tired of being sick and tired. And so what how did things start turn, you know, looking up for you? You know, what did you start doing once you came out out of read? You know, what were well, those, those next steps? So right away, uh, they were going to let me out. I was going to go to this place. Everybody told me not to go to this place because people are getting high there. But I was like, I'm going to this place because that's the first place I looked at. For some reason, I felt like God sent me there. I had my sister pick me up. I did not want to take the bus there because I started realizing who I really was and what my kind of defects were. So Mm -hmm. she picked me up, took me there, dropped me straight off. And I was just, I got there and I hit the ground running. I wasn't playing anymore. Like I wanted a life. So I wasn't with the nonsense. I I took all the suggestions. I didn't care what anybody was talking about when it came to negativity. You know, I was just strict when it came to my path. I was tired. I didn't want to, I didn't want to die anymore. Madeline. Mm-hmm. I'm not talking about physically death, physical death. I'm talking about just spiritual death. My, you know, the mentality of living just dead. I just, I was waking up. I wasn't with the nonsense anymore. When you were going, I'm sorry, when you were no, going good. through that, I know that we had a conversation a, a while back. I think we met maybe 10 years ago, I believe. I remember you saying that during that, that difficult time, you couldn't even fathom having a real life, a family, no. you know, 
nothing normal. And these are really basic things that people yearn for, you know, is to have a family, to have a future, to have a stable home, to have a roof over your head. You know, what did you think when you were going through this? And as far as your future and kind of, did you want those things? Did you think you deserved to be happy and have those things? Well, well, just imagine, you know, right now you're sitting in a building with 120 men. You're in an apartment with five other roommates. You have maybe two outfits, no job. Um, you know, I, I, I'm just blown away. I never would have thought it would be possible to come from that, you know, to where I am now being married, being successful, giving back to the community. Yes, I wanted all those things, but if you would have told me living in that little six-man apartment that all these things that I have now, which I'll get to shortly, would you know be in my life, I, I would have told you you're you're crazy. But it's funny how this this goes and how you know our lives go. You know, God only gives you things you can handle at the time. So I wouldn't have been able to handle all the things that I have now in my life. I had to go through my my phases. You know, I had to start peeling this onion of Joe's life and start healing and forgiving and, you know, getting free of this baggage that I've been living with, you know, because it was a journey being at that house. There's a lot of negativity, you know, pressure, but I was done. And is there anything looking back, you know, now that you're kind of, just kind of reliving it as we're talking. Is there anything that you think you could have done differently? It's a good question. I wouldn't change a thing. Uh, for the simple fact that I wouldn't be where I'm at today if it wasn't for my my past. Yeah, I, I don't think I would change a thing because if it wasn't for my past, then I, I wouldn't have met my wife because I met my wife while I was in my transformation. Mm-hmm. You know, so I, I wouldn't change a thing. That's awesome. I'm thankful for it. Yeah, because there's a lot of people out there that are probably thinking and and relating to your story and thinking, you know, if I would have done this, you know, if I would have shown up five seconds or five minutes later, you know, if I would have taken a bus and not the car, you know, that accident wouldn't have happened. Like, you know, we start questioning if we have control, if we could have done something differently. In a, in a situation. But I love that you said that if it wasn't for what you went through, I mean, you went through a lot. Yeah. That you wouldn't And I'm be... only giving you like a little smidget of what I went through. So, <laughs> you know. You could so. save you could save that for the book. <laughs> right. For the book that you're going to write. <laughs> right. So, so tell me a little bit. So let's fast forward. Tell me a little bit about the amazing story of who you are now. What amazing things have come out of that, that very difficult and dark time in your life? During the time of being at the facility, I had this job where I was picking up the handicapped and elderly. I met my wife. And it's funny how God works because she introduced me to Jesus. I never was a fan or follower, thought the Bible was man-made. And remember, this is only my personal opinion. Right. She invited me to church and my life skyrocketed in a nutshell. Um, we've been married for over 10 years. We're a blended family. I have my oldest daughter, Asia, my other daughter, Alani's. We don't use the word step. I've been with Alani since she was two. And then we had two other beautiful daughters, Ava and Addison. 
you know, I'm a substance abuse counselor. Who knows that? Who knew that that would have occurred? Um, I thought I was going to be a barber for the rest of my life, but God works in mysterious ways and he's, you know, got a sense of humor. Uh, he's like, no, you're going to go back and help the people. That's you know, right. I've actually been a counselor doing reentry work, helping the homeless inside and outside of church. Like I stated, outside the walls. Mm-hmm. I currently work at a safe haven, nonprofit organization, housing over 350 people. I'm a, a lead substance abuse counselor here. I'm just, you know, like, you know, I've stated to the, to you about this before, but I'm still in awe of what God is doing in my life. You know, I never take mm-hmm. it for granted. I stay humble. I'm not immune. I know that at any moment I could always go back to how I used to be, but I'm just in awe of what uh, God has done in my life and what he continues to do in my life. Because if you would have told me that I would be where I'm at today with all the things that are going on in my life, I would have laughed at it. And on top of that, going to a third world country, I was, you know, I was blessed to go. We were actually in school together, Madeline. I was Mm -hmm. in school of ministry. I was actually able to go to Haiti and bless orphans with haircuts and build little huts. And and I was able to preach out there. So I just, I'm still in awe, you know, things I've done, going back to prisons and going back to places I used to be speaking. It's just been, it's been a wild journey. So basically anyone that's listening to this that, you know, may have been through something like this, you know, maybe they're not using their, their talents and their gifts the way that you are. You're letting them know that, hey, you can do amazing things, that you have a lot to give and a lot to share. That's the key of, you know, wanting to share your story today. You know, what's the reason? Why do you think it's important for you to share your story, and I know you've shared it many times before, but why do you think that that it was important to share it today? I just believe that you can't, this is a part of the healing process for anyone that you cannot keep things inside. And I believe that in order to get free, you have to give it away. There's a saying, Madeline, I don't know if you ever heard this before, in order to keep it, you must give it away. Mm. I don't, yeah, I don't know if you kind of get that. Like it's, it's, it's about being free. Right. You know, even as me being a counselor, I'm still honest with my clients. Yes, there's this little, like, you know, small print that says counselors shouldn't divulge personal information, but I believe, I solely believe on being transparent with whoever because you never know the amount of help you can be by sharing truth with someone. That's so right. that's why I'm always open about my story because, you know, in order to keep it, you have to give it away constantly. I love that. So before we wrap up, I definitely wanted to get your perspective. You know, as we are currently living in a pandemic, what advice would you give people that potentially are going through something similar, you know, drug addiction, maybe worried that they're going to become homeless uh, at this moment because of not having a job or, you know, whatever it is that they're going through, how this is affecting them because they're sick and they can't go to work. What would you tell someone that's going through something like this right now? You know, I'm counseling people right now that are going through this. Uh, Some people aren't able to leave at my program. So it's a lot Mm -hmm. of frustration, a lot of anxiety, 
a lot of depression. Uh, the bottom line is just to stay faithful, stay hopeful, and the there's a light at the end of the tunnel. I, I know it's easier said than done, but I mm-hmm. personally have people that have lost their jobs right now. Actually, my wife is at home. Uh, I know a bunch of people that have lost their jobs that don't have income, but you just need to stay faithful and hopeful that your day is coming. That's, That's awesome. I, I, I keep it simple like that. And I know mm-hmm. that may sound a little cliche-ish, even if that's a word, but I just, you have to stay hopeful. Hope. Nobody can take that away. Stay that's hopeful. Right. My whole life is based on hope. Mm-hmm. I didn't know I was going to be where I'm at. I didn't, you know, so I, and I can just end it with this. If I can get through anything, I know I can get through this. Right. <laughs> so, like, Yeah. Yeah. And that's the premise of wanting to do this podcast is to really show people that they probably have already been through some very difficult things. Right. You know, they, they've already been courageous, as right. I like to say. Right. And so you have to go back to that deep, dark, difficult time and say, hey, you know what? Yeah, if I if I got through that, I can definitely get through this. And that's you hit it right on the head. That's exactly what it's about. It's really drawing from that strength that the inner strength that we know we already have, you know, that God has given us and activating it and saying, Hey, every day I'm going to try to do something towards bettering myself towards, you know, moving towards a better future and doing good things and being good to people. And, and that's exactly what you've done. You know, you, you have not allowed your past to define who you are and it has not defined your future and to see your beautiful family and to see your journey, even in the last 10 years has been amazing and it's been a blessing. And I know that it speaks volumes to so many people that come in contact with you. And so I would love for people to have an opportunity to connect with you. How can people find out, you know, what you're up to, what you're doing, you know, what you're doing in ministry? Because I'm sure there's people that you can definitely connect with out there. Well, they're more than welcome to call my direct line um, in my office. If you want me to go ahead and give the number. Sure. Go ahead. The number is 773-435- 8346. That's my direct line. If you don't reach me, just leave a message and I'll return the call. But my motto is I'm always here to help do what I can for anyone. Yeah, but Madeline, you were saying resilience. It's all about resilience. There's resilience in everybody. How would how do we bounce back? How do we bounce back? How do we turn this around? And you know, my favorite quote of all times, I won't, you know, hold you hostage, but is it's not how you start, it's how you finish. That's right. That is so true. I love it. Okay, Joe. Well, I want to thank you. Thank you so much for being so honest and transparent. I know that your story is going to impact many, many people out there, hopefully all over the country and all over the world. I'm excited for you and kind of where God is leading you. And um, I know that your story will continue to just help and empower other people. Anywhere you go, everyone you talk to, I know is are, are going to be impacted by you. Thank you for being on the Courageous Podcast. And I look forward to connecting again in the future and just kind of seeing where you are and what you're up to in the near future. Thank you so much. I'm glad I could be helped. Hey, Courageous Community. Thanks so much for joining us. I hope you were encouraged today. If you have a courageous story or want to connect with today's guest, email us at courageouspodcast2020 at gmail.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Courageous Podcast. Until next time, continue to be strong, 
and courageous.